The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. God is good. All the time. I'm wearing my maroon tie today. I know some of you know why. It's because it's a great day to be a fighting Texas Aggie. I don't know if any of y'all stayed up late enough. I was getting texts till 3 a.m., I think, last night. Texas A&M beat Alabama uh, in the fourth quarter. So it's a great day to be an Aggie, but you know what? It's even a better day to be a Christian. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. We are preaching expositionally uh, through the Gospel of John, and we have found ourselves in a series within a series. We are doing a short series on worship from John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. And last week, we began by looking at three points that we see in Jesus's theology of worship. The first is the universality of worship, that every single person that has ever existed is a worshiper. We see that where the woman asks, which mountain are we to bow down on? Are we to bow down on this mountain or that mountain? She's concerned about worship, and deep down everyone's concerned about worship because every single person is a worshiper. Second, Last week we saw the object of worship, that God and God alone is to be the object of our worship and our praise. And you see this emphasis where Jesus points the woman to worship the Father. Notice at the end of verse 21, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. That's talking about the Father. We worship what we know. That's the Father. Then verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So we are to worship God and God alone, and this is so important. Uh, The early Christians weren't persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. They were persecuted because they refused to worship anyone else. Caesar and the other gods. That's why they were persecuted. So in our own praise, it must be God alone and not even our own desire for worship. God in this time right now is to be the object of our praise. So that was the second point we looked at, the object of worship. The third was the mediator of worship. Jesus says an hour hour is coming and is now here. When people will worship the Father in spirit and truth, Jesus is ushering in a new age of worship, and Jesus is the mediator for all true worship. What that means is this, is that any other worship outside the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't count. It doesn't matter how zealous someone is. It doesn't matter. 
If it's not through the Lord Jesus Christ, God will not accept it. I came across this quote this week from a Puritan, Stephen Sharnock. He said, God tastes a sweetness in no service, but as it is dressed up by the hand of the mediator. So God tastes sweetness in only the worship that is given through His Son. So those are the three really pillars and foundations of worship that we looked at last week. This week, we are going to look at one. We're going to add one more, okay? So the whole sermon is going to be about the next point, and that is the supremacy of worship. The whole thing. So we're adding, the, we're adding a fourth pillar to the three we had last week, and that is the supremacy of worship. I want you to look at verse 23. Direct your attention to verse 23. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now look at this last phrase. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That phrase right there, underline it, circle it, star it in your Bible, that phrase is very, very important. Because what Jesus is revealing in that phrase is the heart of God. He is revealing the passion of God. If you understand this, this will revolutionize your life. If you can understand this difficult truth, it will change how you see the world, it will change how you see yourself, because it changes everything about how you see God. Uh, a lot's at stake this morning. Uh, it's philosophically challenging what we're going to talk about. That's why I, I normally don't do this, but I printed a handout for you. So if you didn't pick up the handout, uh, one of our deacons will be glad to, to bring that to you. But I have a lot of cross-references, a lot. And so you're going to want to have a handout so that way you can be Johnny on the spot checking everything I say uh, with God's Word. If you can grasp what I am saying this morning, you will never look at God or the world the same again. And I know that's a startling claim, but stay with me. Uh, look at that word seeking there at the, ver at the end of verse 23. The Father is seeking such people. It means to desire, to, to search after something. It's the Greek word zateo. Jesus uses it in Luke 15 when He describes the widow who lost her coin, and she seeks after that coin. She turns everything over in her house going after that one coin. Jesus also uses it in Matthew 18, 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search? Or Zoteo, does he not go seek after that one that went astray? And so what I want you to see that is remarkable is it says, Jesus says that God is searching after worshipers, that God himself is seeking after people to worship Him. This is God's highest goal, God's chief end. You know, we've been doing uh, the catechism with, with our kids. Uh, the, the first point of the catechism, what's the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, you know what the chief end of God is? The chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy himself forever. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Father is seeking people to praise him. You might ask, well, I thought the Father was seeking people to save them. I thought God was concerned about saving us. Isn't that why he sent his son, but God demonstrates his own love for us? Isn't that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Isn't that why God sent the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, he sent the Lord Jesus to save us, but he sent the Lord Jesus to save us for the higher end that we might worship him. Amen. That's the end game. Salvation is where it begins Worship is where it ends. That's why we read Revelation 5. Worship is the end of redemption, the end of salvation. And so what Jesus is saying here, and this is why it's so profound, is, is he's saying that God himself is God-centered, that God himself is concerned about his own worship and his own glory. And once you navigate your life around that truth, once you can grasp that, the whole Bible begins to make sense, that God is supremely concerned about his own glory and his own worship. Once you get that, you'll no longer be a training wheel Christian. You'll, you'll get the, the heart of God, the God-centeredness of God. So it's not just uh, in John 4.23, I put a number of references down uh, on your sheet, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 147, 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. So he loves, he takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Now listen, my glory I give to no other. My glory I will give to no other. He says basically the same thing in Isaiah 48, 11. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You want to be about your glory? And your honor, you need to know this, you are standing in direct opposition to God. He will not give an ounce of his glory away. It's for his glory and his glory alone. And this is why when you, when you go back and read the book of Exodus, when God gives the commandments to the children of Israel, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. It's about worship. The first commandment, it's worship. Also, the second commandment. What's the second commandment about? Worship. You shall, have, you shall not bow down before an image or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, he is jealous that he receives all of the worship and all of the praise. 
Now, there's a fascinating little story in the Gospel of Mark, and the story takes place when a scribe, now a scribe was an expert of experts in the law. A scribe would have been a Pharisee, and a scribe would have known all of the oral tradition surrounding all of the 600 plus laws of God. So, uh, we're talking about a person with a lot of gray matter here. And he comes to Jesus in Mark 12, 29, and he asks this question, what is the first and greatest commandment? What's the first commandment, the most important commandment, Jesus? And Jesus says, this is what is most important. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is Jesus saying? You got to worship him. That's the first commandment. You love him with your whole heart, all of your life, all of your strength. Everything that you are is to be dedicated to him. Now, for this reason, a lot of people have rejected Christianity. A lot of people have said, look, if, if the Christian God is demanding that we worship Him, I don't want to worship a God like that. That sounds like some petulant child that's saying, please worship me, give me something, give me something. The God that, that I want to worship doesn't demand anything from us. He doesn't demand that we love Him and praise Him and glorify Him and worship Him. Is God a megalomaniac that he's just seeking his own pleasure? Is God a cosmic narcissist that he's completely and totally absorbed with himself? Last week I was talking to uh, Bud Hip, and he said that this question came up in their life class. Man, that, isn't that great that people are talking about this question in their life class? It's, it's an important question. It's a challenging question. Why does God demand that we glorify and honor and worship Him? Why? Why does God demand that? This week, I got some help from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards answered this question 300 years ago, and I put the premises of his argument there in your notes. You can look at those. But this is what Jonathan Edwards said, and I I think it's really helpful for us in kind of getting a grasp on how we can think about this. But he said, the first premise is this. God is duty-bound to honor and praise that which is truly praiseworthy. So if God is just and God is good then God has a moral obligation to praise and lift up what is most good and most praiseworthy. So that's the first premise. The second premise is that as the omniscient God, He knows that He Himself is the most beautiful, perfect being in the universe. Therefore, God must praise and glorify His own name. If there was someone else more glorious than God, then God would praise them. 
but there's not. It, God knows that. So God glorifies and honors His own name. Third, and this is the conclusion, since it is fitting for God to pursue His own glory and praise, it is right for God's creatures to also pursue the glory of God. Look, if, if, it's, if it's the right thing for God to pursue His glory, then it's the right thing for us to pursue His glory and for God to, to demand that we worship Him and honor Him. So here's a direct quote from Edwards. He says, If it is worthy for God to delight in Himself, then it is worthy and excellent for His creatures to delight in Himself. Uh, the fourth uh, point here is, is really an addendum, but I think it's important. God designed us as image bearers to find our greatest joy in worshiping and glorifying Him. Did you hear that? In other words, God's desire to be honored and glorified is not at odds with your desire to find joy. So much so that your greatest joy your greatest happiness, your greatest fulfillment is found in the worship of God. You won't find anything more satisfying on this earth than to gaze at the beauty of your king. This is another quote from Edwards. He says, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God by which also God is magnified and exalted joy, or the exalting of the heart in God's glory is one thing that belongs to praise. In other words, our highest happiness is found when we set our gaze on God and praise Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we find our joy when we worship God. So the question is, is Edwards right? Is that argument correct? That God is the most glorious being in the universe. And I'm just going to, to make two arguments this morning that He is. And, and the way that I'm going to approach it is, first, I think Edwards is right because God's character is worthy to be praised. And second, because His works, that's a nice way of saying what He's done is worthy to be praised. That God has shown Himself by His character and by His actions that He is the most glorious being in the universe and deserves to be worshiped. And so I do think Edwards is right. So let's, let's just argue this very simply by looking at the worthiness of God's character. Is God's character, who He intrinsically is, worthy to be praised? Look at verse 24 of John 4. Look what Jesus says about God. It's a very profound statement right there in the first three words. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that God is a spirit. He says God is spirit. What Jesus is saying here is something very important about God. 
He's saying that God alone is transcendent. He's saying that God alone is unique in the universe and that God is the creator and everything else is created. If you have a line and everything below the line is the universe and the created beings in the universe and all the, the, the galaxies and all the, the people and all the animals and all everything is below the line, there's one who's above the line, and that's God. God is transcendent over everything. And that's why God says, in Isaiah 40, 25, God says this, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? You, you can't compare me to anybody below that line. He says in Isaiah 46, 9, he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me. There's no one even comparable to God. I know some people talk about Satan. You know, it's like, oh, well, God won today. Satan won today. No, Satan is below the line. Satan, if you remember, was created by God. Satan's powers are limited by God. You can't compare God to anyone. I've always uh, referred back to this definition of God. I memorized this when I was in high school. It's the greatest definition of God I think that's ever been penned. It's from the, the larger catechism. It's this. This is just a mind-blowing definition of God. It's mind-blowing to think about. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Isn't that amazing? And you know what's amazing about that definition is that word infinite, that God, it's not just that God's a being, it's that God's infinite in being. Job says in Job 7, 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? No. God's being is infinite. You know, we, can't, we don't even know how far uh, the, uh, the universe stretches out. We don't even know, we don't even know where it ends. And God created it. He's infinite. His glory is infinite. When Isaiah saw the Lord, Isaiah 6, he says, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's not just the whole earth. It's the whole cosmos is full of His glory. Everything's full of His glory. And He's completely, infinitely perfect. Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We could just go through each and every one of those points of that definition and talk about the infinite majesty of God. And even the definition says that he's incomprehensible. So that means we can't, we, our finite minds will never, ever completely grasp the limits of God, right? Ever. We will spend eternity in heaven gazing at God and learning new things about God. We will have been in heaven 10,000 years and we will have grasped this much of who God is. God is so great. 
And I want to show you this uh, from the Scriptures. There's one place in the Bible where someone has a very remarkable encounter with the presence of God, and that's in Exodus chapter 33. I want you to turn quickly to Exodus 33. It's the second book of the Bible. It's all the way there towards the front. This encounter happens between Moses, the man of God, and God himself. I want you to look at verse 18 of Exodus 33. Moses makes a request of God. He says, please show me your glory. The glory is the manifestation of God's character. In other words, show, show me the Shekinah glory of God that, that flames out from your essence. Moses is probably asking this because God has said that he will not go with the people, and Moses is, is receiving uh, the second uh, set of Ten Commandments. Because remember the first set, when he came down from the mountain, he saw the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, and Moses threw it, it broke. So, so now Moses is going to receive uh, the second set of commandments. And whenever Moses has has received the commandments from God. He's had a close encounter with God. And so, so Moses is asking for that now. He's saying, show me your glory. And this is what God says. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Uh, that word, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's, it's the name that God had given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when, when Moses had asked, well, what is your name? And God said, well, tell them that I am sent you. That's, that's the Hebrew word, Yahweh. And it just means being. It means I, I'm pure being. I am. Well, when were you, God? I am. Were you there a million years ago? I am. Can, can you do anything that you dare to accomplish? I am. He is pure being. And so God says, I will go and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And then he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, God is free. God is free to display his grace and his mercy to whomever he pleases. But, God says this in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, God is a spirit. We already talked about that, that God's transcendent. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a literal face. In a second, he's going to talk about that he's going to put Moses in the cleft of the rock and, and put his hand over the rock, and then Moses can see his back. God doesn't have actual body parts. This is language that God is using to help us understand the essence of his presence. But, but it's really hard for us to understand what exactly this means. There's really no explanation for it. We're talking about uh, a divine spirit, a divine being here. So he says, you cannot see my face and live. And then verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and where my glory, 
that's the essence of his character, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, for, but my face shall not be seen. This is, we don't really understand what this means. There's, Moses gives no explanation of what this experience was then like. All we know is that it wasn't a full-fledged encounter with the essence of God because uh, John says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16 that no one has seen Him or can see Him. So it was some manifestation of His glory, but it wasn't a full-on encounter. uh, taking in. It wasn't a full-on spectacle of God. So, we, we, it's really hard to comprehend exactly what God is meaning here. Then God says this, then I shall take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 34, verse 1, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Verse 3, no one shall come up with you. So the mountain is to be sacred, and no one else is to come up on the mountain. Not the elders, not Aaron, no one else. He says, and let no one even be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. So he cuts the two tablets and he carries them up on the mountain. Do you know how old Moses is here? Eighty years old. Eighty years of age. I mean, you got to think that that's got to be a, a strenuous task to, to cut out, out of rocks of stone these tablets and then carry them up on the mountain. You know, I don't care how old you are, God's not done with you yet. Amen. If you're here this morning, it's because God's not done with you. Amen. It's uh, even more of a reason to stay in shape, right? You don't know when God's going to ask you to carry some, some stones up the mountain. So he goes up the mountain, and then the Lord, verse 5, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaim the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Martin Luther said about these verses that God preaches a sermon to Moses. God doesn't so much show Moses who he is as he tells Moses who he is, because the name possesses the full character of God, and God 
tells Moses. He says, look, I'm a God who's both loving and I'm a God of justice. That's essentially what he says. He says, I'm compassionate and gracious. That means that he has tender character. Uh, character, that he's, that he's kind. Then he says uh, he's slow to anger. That's a Hebrew idiom uh, of the opposite of burning with anger, that he's a patient God. He doesn't just strike us down when we sin against him. He says he's abounding in love, abounding in chesed, that he, that he loves people. And he, he doesn't just love people, but he's faithful to the covenant that he provides. Then he says he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's three Hebrew words for sin, emphasizing the fact that God loves to forgive sinners. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet, God does all this, and He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And how will He do that? How will He accomplish that? How can He just forgive sinners and then not leave the guilty unpunished? How does he accomplish that? The cross. The cross. The cross is where he mediates his judgment and his mercy. It's where he judges your sin, pouring it out on Christ so that he can give you grace and mercy. See, God is a God of both justice and love. And look at verse 8. It's so remarkable, verse 8. What is Moses' response to the character of God? Worship. Worship. The natural response when you encounter the character of Almighty God is just simply fall down on your face and worship Him. It says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Worshipped. And one of the reasons I think that we aren't worshiping like we should is that we're not seeing God like we should. We're not getting on our knees and praying, saying, God, show me your glory. We're not opening up the word of God like we should and saying, God, show me your character. I want to know who you are. Reveal yourself to me in your word reason why we have trouble worshiping other things, our finances and our worldly pleasures and all those things, is because our eyes aren't set on God. Because when our eyes are set on God, just like Moses here, you, you just fall down and you worship Him. It's a natural response to the character of God, the worthiness of His character. So quickly, that's the worthiness of His character. It's not just that God, God's character is worthy to be worshipped. It's also what He's done. It's the worthiness of His works. It's the worthiness of, of what He's done in uh, history. And when we think about what God has done, we need to think about primarily three things. If you read through Scripture and you look at how God is praised, God is praised primarily for three things that He's done. And those three things are this. First, creation. God is, cre- God is praised because He is our Creator. Second, God is praised because He is King and He providentially governs everything in the universe, in history. God reigns. 
And third, God is praised because He's our Redeemer. God saves sinners. Those are the three primary things that God is praised for. So I'm just going to look at these very quickly. First, creation. The Bible asserts that God is the creator of everyone and everything. That's the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you can find many more verses that say the exact same thing. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, we're created in God's image, so that means that we also like to create things. We like to, to, to put things to, together. We like to write songs. We like to design buildings, build buildings. We love to create things. But we are different from God in that we create things out of resources that are already there for us. We want to create a building. We have the iron, the granite, all those things. We can create the building. God is unique in that He creates from nothing. The Latin word is ex nihilo, from nothing. That God created the cosmos with a word the Word. That, that fact right there, you go talk to any evolutionary scientist, and, and they will try to do gymnastics to try and explain the creation of the universe, right? There's uh, the law of non-contradiction says that A cannot be B at the same time and in the same relationship. In other words, uh, Teddy, your dog, cannot be a cat at the same time and in the same relationship. What, what people say when you ask them, well, how did the universe come into being? They say, well, uh, the universe created itself. Wait, what? Excuse me? So you're saying that the universe, which at some point didn't exist, somehow existed at the same time and created itself? It completely violates the law of non-contradiction. can't happen because the universe can exist and not exist at the same time. You have to have a creator. It's so obvious. Even children can understand that. And what's our response to seeing the fact that God is a creator? Everywhere in Scripture, what's the response when we look out and see what He's made? The right response is... Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The response to seeing the creation is supposed to be worship. Worship. Second is providence. Providence. Providence, man, this is such a great doctrine. You, you got to hang your hat on the providence of God. This is my definition. Providence is God miraculously working all actions and events in history according to the purposes of His sovereign will. That God not only ordains everything that's going to happen, but God is working. He, he's not a, a cosmic watchmaker who has just stepped back and has just let the universe run but God is working concurrently. We don't understand how this can happen because we are uh, free creatures. We don't understand how God can be working even in all of our actions, but He is. That's what Scripture says. 
that God is working everything according to His will. I once heard John MacArthur say that the providence of God is more of a miracle than a miracle. It's more of a miracle than a miracle, because this is what a miracle is. A miracle is when God does something supernatural and miraculous in time and space. He just snaps his fingers, and, and the waters turn into wine. Or he, he says a word, and the storm is calmed. It, it's just God doing one act and intervening supernaturally in time and space. Providence is God handling a trillion things at the same time concurrently so that they are all working towards His sovereign plan with free creatures. It's absolutely mind-blowing to think about, but that is the nature of our God. Just be stunned by these verses. Psalm 33:11. the counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation. What is unfolding right now in history? The plans of God right now. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things, that's, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You know, th- this scares people. It scares people to think that God is in control of everything. But you know what scares me? The idea that God's not in control of everything. It scares me even more. Let me give you uh, just a couple more verses. Ephesians 1.11. I once got in an argument with a Navy chaplain over this issue. He was arguing that God doesn't control everything. And I just Sat, we were at a Taco Bell, Taco Bell over in Japan, and I just quoted this one verse, and his mouth dropped. It was, the argument was done. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Not some things, all things. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Is He, so you're saying that God is Sovereign over nations? Yes. Daniel 2.21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Um, Listen, friends, America was established by the divine hand of God. It wasn't the ingenuity of George Washington and all those men. I mean, it was in the sense that God used that, but it was the divine sovereign hand of God. And it's been His hand that has sustained this nation to this point, period, period. You think uh, everything hinged at the Battle of Midway? Everything. And one pilot looks through a cloud bank and sees the Japanese fleet on, just on a, on a, a cinch, right before they're about to turn back, and then the whole course of World War II changes on that one look at the, at the Japanese fleet? What is that? It's the providence of God. It's not luck. I don't like the word luck. I've seen the providence of God in my own life. My father was killed in a plane crash in Beaufort, South Carolina. And when I went back to visit his memorial marker for the first time, that's when I met my wife would have never met her if my father hadn't have died years before. 
course, I was afraid to talk to her at that point. She had four brothers, and her dad was very intimidating. But we met, and things began to happen, and, th- and, and God planted a seed in that moment. God is orchestrating everything, and that's supposed to give us comfort, and we're supposed to worship Him and praise Him. And, and uh, the, the classic verse for this is, is found in Romans chapter 8. I'll just read it very quickly. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look at Paul's response to this. What then shall we say against these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's the hope and the providence of God. God's for us. Who can be against us? God's in control. Third and finally is redemption. It's God's work to save sinners. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been in the business of saving sinners. And we are all sinners. We've all sinned against God. And redemption is God's work in reconciling us to God. Jonah says in Jonah 2.9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not, it does, we don't save ourselves. It's God who saves. That's why I love Ephesians chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, when Paul explains our sinfulness and our, our deadness and our, 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 our spiritual uh, plight before God, he says, each case, these two words, but God but God. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but God. God intervenes in redemption, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace and grace alone that you've been saved, but God. That's, if you are a Christian, that's the story of your life, but God. God intervened, and God redeemed. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Uh, Turn to John chapter 17, and and I want you to see the heart of our Lord as He's praying to the Father. It's just such a remarkable verse. This is John 17, 24. And he's talking about essentially the end game of redemption. You know, we talked about earlier that God, yeah, God loves to save sinners. But what's the purpose of God? What's the purpose of Christ in saving sinners? Look at Jesus' prayer here in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that remarkable? The writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy is displaying his glory to us in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever, and for us to worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. This is the heart of God. The heart of our Lord is that we worship 
him, that we bowed down before him. And isn't he worthy? He's so worthy for who he is and for what he's done. And therefore, God has a right to demand that he be glorified. Therefore, we must make it our life's ambition, our life's effort to honor and glorify him. And friend, this is where true joy is found. True joy is found in the God-centered life. That's it. If you can grasp this about God and then orient your life and yourself to who God is, everything begins to fall into place. And what you will find is that your heart begins to overflow with joy and happiness in Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are a glorious God, a God that is deserving of all of our worship and all of our praise. And we thank You, Lord, that Your desire to be glorified is not at odds with our desire for joy and our desire for happiness, but that in You, in glorifying and worshiping You, we find our greatest joy and our greatest happiness. And so, Lord, may we press into that. May we cast aside every sin that is prohibiting us from honoring you and worshiping you the way that we should. And may we set you first. May we truly see you and like Moses, fall down on our face and worship you in your presence. I pray, Lord, for each of these people here this morning that in their times this week as families and in personal worship in their quiet time, that when they open up the Word of God, that you would be real and that they would know you and that they would fall down before you and worship you. We pray, Lord, that Sundays, the Lord's Day, would be special in our heart that we would be looking forward to Sundays when we can come here with your people and corporately worship you together and bow down before you and say, God, you are truly worthy of all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the praise. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.